and talk some about uh, the significance of the resurrection. If you are new to the Bible, you might be interested to know that those words that Jan just read to us were written by a doctor and historian named Luke. And Luke is one of just several people who wrote about the record of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we heard Jan read in verse 6, he is not here, here meaning in the tomb. He is not here, but he is risen. That, brothers and sisters, is what we're celebrating this morning. The decisive moment in human history is the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is to that resurrection we will be looking together this morning. We will be doing uh, this week at the end of our gathering after the benediction, another Q&A, a, a time of considering questions that you have that come up from the passage we're looking at this morning and any questions that you might want to ask. So if you hover at the bottom of your screen, you'll notice there's a, a Q&A feature that will pop up. If you press that button, then uh, feel free during this sermon to be submitting um, any questions that you'd have about the passage or about the topic that we're addressing. And uh, a little bit later this morning, uh, Gracie Turner and I will be spending some time answering some of those questions. So if there's anything you want to ask, please, as we're working our way through here, submit those. And they'll come only to us uh, here, the panelists, and we'll be able to address those for a few minutes afterwards. Now, we could talk a lot this morning about the event of the resurrection itself. That portion of scripture that Jan read for us. There's a lot to explore and discover. If you're unfamiliar with the details of what happened, then I would encourage you just to look up a Bible online and look up the book called Luke within the Bible and take a few hours this coming week to read through the Gospel of Luke. It'll tell you exactly who Jesus was and what he did and what happened in his resurrection. But instead of retelling the details of that resurrection itself, today we're going to continue, church, in our weekly study through the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking providentially at what happened after the resurrection. Particularly, we're going to be considering in Acts chapter 4, the significance of the resurrection, and some of the effects that flow from the resurrection. That is, we'll be considering this morning together, not the event of the resurrection itself, but what the resurrection means and what results come from the resurrection. So if you would, please open in your Bible or your app with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. And in God's kindness, we will be together looking at verses 1 through 31. That's verses 1 through 31. Now, roughly six weeks after Jesus rose from the dead, two men were arrested. They were held in prison overnight, and they were put on trial the next day for preaching about the resurrection. As we peer in together at this important moment, we'll learn much about why the resurrection continues to matter today. As we study these events for the next 30 minutes or so, whether you're not yet sure that you even believe the resurrection happened, or 
whether you've staked your entire life on the resurrection for years and years and years. Friend, our hope and prayer is that the story we're about to study of Peter and John's arrest would lead you to consider Jesus and the implications of his resurrection in the most profound ways. Now, a brief word about what brought us to this moment in Acts chapter 4. In the previous chapter, we learned last week that God worked through the Apostle Peter to show Jesus' identity and power through the healing of a man who had a lifelong disability. And this miraculous healing of a crippled man instantly drew a crowd because everybody knew this guy who had been healed. And so they came rushing into the courtyard of the temple, into the portico of Solomon, in order to hear and see what had happened. And as that began to occur, Peter stood up and he gave a great testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. But not everyone liked Peter's teaching. In Acts chapter 4, the church, just weeks old and only numbering a couple thousand people, met its first significant opposition. Bobby Young, you're going to see come on the screen. Don't be distracted by his hair. He has a lot of it. He is going to be reading for us Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. As they were speaking to the people, and the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people about and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Thanks, Bobby. News, we might say, travels fast. Outside the, the temple, this huge crowd had assembled to hear the preaching and teaching of Peter, specifically the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. And word of Peter's preaching quickly spread, not only among the crowd, but among particular people in the crowd. It reached the ears of those in charge of the temple, and they weren't happy. If you look there in verse 1, you'll see some of these people named. They were the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of the main religious groups or parties of the day. This, this was the nationalistic, politically motivated, Rome-collaborating, more liberal-leaning party that was present among the Jews in the first century. And this new preaching from the apostles left the Sadducees greatly annoyed. They were annoyed in particular and put off by, by the idea of the resurrection. And so they took Peter and John and very likely the man who had been healed into custody and put them on trial for the next day. Brothers and sisters, this is the moment in which opposition against the church of Jesus Christ began. Persecution from mild to severe has been the norm for Christianity for the last 2,000 years. Jesus told us it would be that way. If it was that way for Jesus, then of course it would be that way for us. 
And the scriptures itself testify that this is typical. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But here in Acts 4, this is just the very first time. Persecution is just beginning to emerge. Peter, John, and that formerly disabled man locked up overnight. Well, what would happen the next day? Tara Murphy is going to come on now, and she'll be reading our next section, Acts 4, verses 5 to 12. Listen to what happened. In particular, listen for what Peter says is the significance of the resurrection. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thanks, Tara. So imagine the scene with me, if you could. Peter, John, and the healed man are, are brought in to the elaborate meeting hall of something that was called the Sanhedrin. That's the group that's being referenced in verses 1 and 5 and 6. If we compile those people, those folks made up the group called the Sanhedrin. Now, unless you're a Jewish scholar, that may not mean much to you. So let me tell you a little bit about them. Think of a mix between the United States Senate, the United States Supreme Court, and some uh, ecclesiastical or church body. And if you meld all those groups together, you get the idea of who these men were. After the Roman governor and the soldiers, this group, the Sanhedrin, was the next most important and authoritative body in the nation of Israel. This is the same group, by the way, who just weeks before had condemned Jesus himself. That fateful night as Jesus was arrested and tried must have been on Peter and John's mind as they were brought in to meet with the Sanhedrin themselves. Perhaps they were asking, will we too be mocked? Will we too be belittled? Will we too be struck in the face? Will we too be given over to Rome for execution? Well, only time would tell. The, the trial, as we've just read together, had only begun. Now, when the Sanhedrin asked Peter and John, why or how or by what power did that man get healed? Well, then Peter boldly declared that it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
Now think about that for a moment. If Peter and John had only been interested in making a defense, well, then that would have been a long enough answer. That would have been sufficient. Jesus healed the man. End of story. Now, everybody knows if you're in trouble, the best thing to do is to say as little as you possibly can. But if you look at verse 10, you'll notice that there's a comma, not a period. Peter had more to say. Friends, the early Christians' motivation as persecution broke out was not self-protection. They were not principally concerned with their own safety and security. They didn't just want to get away from this trial unscathed. No, they were driven by something else. They were driven by love. They were driven by compassion. They were driven by a power to make the gospel known. That's why the second half of verse 10 and verse 11 and verse 12 are in the Bible. Now picture that scene, 70 leaders in three semicircles with Peter and John and the healed man standing before them, standing to give testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. I imagine Peter may have raised his finger and pointed at them and said, you crucified him. But God, God resurrected him. God raised him from the dead. You condemned him, but God vindicated him. You rejected him, but the Father accepted him. And he is now the very foundation of the Christian faith. That might not seem like it on the surface, But those words, those strong words, were the most loving thing that could have ever been said to the Sanhedrin. You see, Peter was inviting that group, and by implication all of us, to see our sin, to recognize our guilt, and to come to terms with the love of Jesus Christ. And that's still what Christians today are inviting all people to. Maybe you're here on this live stream precisely because someone who loves you invited you. This brings us to the significance of the resurrection. That's what Peter was preaching. That's what his testimony was all about. Here's the significance of the resurrection. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. The resurrection means, friends, that Jesus is alive and well. It means that God raised him from the dead. It means the resurrection serves as Jesus' vindication. It's the divine confirmation that Jesus is, in fact, King, Messiah, Lord. It's the undeniable proof that everything Jesus claimed for himself that everything Jesus said, that all the power Jesus displayed is 100% verified by God the Father. It's true. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the king. He's the foundation. He's the savior. He's the crucified yet resurrected one. He is exalted 
He is ruling and reigning today. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're watching this live stream and you're not a Christian, then let me try to put this as plainly as Peter did. As the resurrected king, Jesus can make you well. That's what the healing of the disabled man was meant to illustrate. That one man's physical healing served as an undeniable picture of salvation offered to all. His healing was a, a vivid dramatization of the truthfulness of the gospel. You see, Jesus has the authority and power to make all people ultimately well. COVID-19 is, of course, on all of our minds this morning. It is the reason we're watching instead of gathered. This disease caused by the new coronavirus is ravaging people all over the world. This is a sad and solemn time. But friend, there is a far deadlier enemy already within us. It is the enemy of sin. The scriptures tell us that we were designed to, to know, to enjoy, to obey, and to image God. But sin, that fatal enemy within, has separated us from him. And because God is holy and just, he, he does not, indeed he cannot, simply set the wages of sin aside. No, sin must be dealt with. And so, in the greatest shock imaginable, God himself, Jesus, left heaven, came to earth, became a human being, lived the perfect life you and I were meant to live in order that he would die the sacrificial death we deserved to die, where he absorbed all the moral failures of all God's people and bore God's wrath as a result, and he died. Like the roughly 112,000 people who have died from COVID-19, Jesus breathed his last. But unlike all of them, death didn't have the final word. You see, being the God-man, being perfect, being the author of life, being the one vindicated by the Father, Jesus rose again. And therefore, it is now in him that salvation, the ultimate wellness, is offered to all. Friend, this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ and you believe this good news, then turn from sin and turn to him. Confess with your mouth even now that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You will be welcomed into an eternal relationship with God, spiritually awakened to new life, given spiritual healing now. And one day, all that ails you will be made new. Now, to those who are already in Jesus Christ, beloved brothers and sisters, Church on Mill, 
our deepest and most profound need have already been met by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior. There is salvation in no one else. And so, brothers and sisters, while we do sense that the coronavirus is near, while we are more aware, perhaps, that death could come more quickly than we are typically, we need not fear. God raised Jesus from the dead, and therefore, if any of us die in the days or weeks ahead, we can have full confidence in our Lord God that one day he will raise us too. You see, Jesus is a sufficient Savior. He is ruling and reigning now, and upon his return, all of us who know him will be given a resurrected body like his, and we will live with him forever. There is no other name given among, under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is enough. That's the significance of the resurrection. That was Peter's defense. Now, what would the Sanhedrin say in response? Well, let's read on in the story. If you would, look with me at verse 13. And I'll read verses 13 through 22. Now, when they, that's the Sanhedrin, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they were perceived, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed among them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, saying, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man upon whom this healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Here in this response from the Sanhedrin and the commensurate response from Peter and John, we learn something not only of the significance of the resurrection, as we've been considering this morning, but we also see some of the effects of the resurrection. What results happen because Jesus rose again? Well, in our remaining couple of minutes, I'd love to point out to you just three, three effects of the resurrection. Number one, this passage shows us that there will be opposition to the news of Jesus resurrected. Opposition is normal. The resurrection calls all peoples to submit to Jesus as Lord. The resurrection demands a response. The resurrection says 
Jesus is Lord, Chuck is not. Jesus is Lord, you are not. And friends, the world will always resort to threats when our sense of autonomy and in-chargeness, if you will, is threatened. But friend, you were not created to be in charge. You were created to enjoy the one who is. There will be opposition, brothers and sisters, but that opposition ought not come from our demeanor or how we treat people. It ought to come solely from the news that Jesus rules and reigns and that we are culpable in his death. A second effect of the resurrection, number two, is we see in this passage that even in the context of opposition, lives will be shown to be changed by Jesus Christ. Consider Peter as our example. Peter had less than two months before, very likely right at six weeks. Peter had crumbled and denied even knowing Jesus. Not to the Sanhedrin assembled in a formal trial, but merely to people in courtyards and gardens. Peter said in a matter of hours, three times, I don't know him. I've never known him. I'm not with him. How do you explain six weeks and this dramatic change? Well, friend, after the resurrection, after the filling of the Holy Spirit, Peter came to speak boldly. Why? Well, because he'd been changed. He'd been changed from the inside out. That's what the power of the Lord Jesus Christ does. He transforms us. We who were, brothers and sisters, are no longer we who are. God has changed us. Amen? Even the Sanhedrin saw this. You'll notice in your Bibles in verse 13 that it says they were astonished. Peter and John had not gone to the religious academy like those in the Sanhedrin. They held no formal office in Judaism. They were just two blue-collar workers from small rural towns but here they stood in the very halls of power and they preached Christ crucified and resurrected. Picture somebody in flip-flops and overalls schooling the Supreme Court justices on the intricacies of the Constitution. That's what Peter was doing with his Bible. Jesus had transformed him. Beloved, would you take a moment now just to reflect back, take time to consider and thank God for the way he's transforming you. It wasn't just Peter. It wasn't just John. It wasn't just that ex-disabled man. It's all of us. We've all been transformed by Jesus Christ. Because you are forgiven, because you've been united with Jesus Christ, because you've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, then God's transformation in your life is no less dramatic. It is no less a testimony 
to the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. May of all the things we do today, may we praise God for how he's changed us. Now, a third effect we see of the resurrection is that what happens as a result of the resurrection is not only personal, it's not only individual, it's also collective, it's communal, it's corporate. Listen to the church's reaction as Peter and John were let go, as they went back to their friends, their new brothers and sisters in Christ who made up the church in Jerusalem. Listen to how the resurrection affected not just the individuals, but the group. We see that in verse 23 through 31. Follow along with me, if you would. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, what a prayer this is. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Church, notice what this church didn't pray for. They didn't pray that no one would get arrested again. They didn't pray that no more persecution would come. They didn't pray for ease, a lack of hardship. They didn't pray that they would just be left alone by that big bad, scary world. No, friends, the church's consuming desire was that collectively they would be a faithful, bold witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's who he is. And because they'd been transformed by him. And brothers and sisters, when we come to see something of who Jesus is, and we experience his transforming power in our own lives. And we can't help but in the power of the Holy Spirit to be a bold witness for him. Persecution or not, Jesus is alive and people need him. May this same Jesus raise up a church, this church, to live as bold witnesses for our resurrected King. And it is to this King we now pray.
Chuck for opening the word. Church, why don't you join me in prayer? Father God, we are thankful for the faithful witness and the trustworthy testimony that we have received. Now, on this Resurrection Sunday, we rejoice that Christ has put death to death. We rejoice that in conquering sin and death and being raised from the dead, Christ has the power to save. Heavenly Father, for the non-Christian that has joined our fellowship this morning, we pray in particular that you would expose the problem of their sin and their need for a Savior. We pray that they would see the insufficiency of the things that their hopes have been built upon. We pray that they would humbly submit to the rightful King of Kings and turn to the sole Savior, Christ Jesus. Even now, would you extend your sovereign hand to extend the free gift of grace to those who would confess Christ as Lord and Savior? For there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Father, for the Christian this morning, may we rest in the sufficiency of our Savior. His work is finished. Christ is a sure and solid foundation. The foundation of our faith cannot be shaken. Like Peter and John, we pray this morning for a renewed boldness in proclaiming Christ both in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. When there is opposition, we pray for a supernatural reliance upon the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. May we not fear persecution, but rather remember moment by moment that ours is a living hope and that we've been called to live holy lives in these times of darkness being faithful witnesses to all. As Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May we be a church marked by steadfastness and by an unwavering commitment to the truth of Scripture, even when that truth is challenged and unpopular. May we be a church that is committed to doing what is right a loving and merciful church, and a church that above all else desires to walk humbly with our God. May we labor for the kingdom, knowing that our labor is not in vain, even though we don't always see the fruits of our labors. Lord, we long for that day foretold in Revelation 21 when Christ again will say, it is finished. That day when to all those who are thirsty will be given the water of life without payment. Come, Lord Jesus. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen.